Quinn Avenue, I can still picture it just singing, God, you're my God, and I will follow you all, all, all of my days. And um, like, like many of you, I can now look back and talk about the step-by-step, step-by-step you lead me and the faithfulness of God. And we're going to look at steps in David's life this morning. Like was mentioned in prayer, we've been, we've been looking at David's life and the Psalms that were partnered up, that he wrote in response to what was happening in his life, and we've been looking at a life of worship. And we're going to flip things around this morning. I'm not going to preach the Psalm. I'm actually going to read the Samuel passage, and I will read some verses from the Psalm. It's a long one, and so I'll ask you not to look that Psalm up, and I'll just read some selective verses from it that I'll talk about, but I'm going to lean much more heavily into the story that um, we read from Samuel this morning. So I want to say one other thing about that story before we read it, and that is this, that the story is going to talk about something called the Ark of the Covenant. And let me just say a little bit about what that is in case you're not familiar. Uh, God has been on a journey, and we're picking up in the middle of the journey with David's story, but when the world fell into sin, it no longer knew God. And God wasn't going to leave the world that way. He loved it. And he wanted to redeem. And so he set out on a journey that started with Abraham. And he called him and said, I'm going to to redeem the world. I'm going to bless the world through you. And so the people of Israel come from Abraham. And God called them out of Egypt and is leading them to a promised land. And on the way, he reveals himself at Mount Sinai to them. And it's quite a terrifying experience. There's clouds and thick darkness and thunder and lightning, but God speaks. And he gives ten commandments. And he actually inscribes them on stone with his finger. And after giving them, he gives instructions to Moses about a number of things. But among those instructions, he instructs that an ark of the covenant should be made. Now the covenant is the promise that God's made. I'll be your God And you'll be my people. And actually commentators say that what happens in Exodus 20 looks a lot like a a wedding ceremony. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And this is the covenant. It's these two tablets. And God says, I want you to build this ark. It's going to be about four feet by two and a half by two and a half. It's going to be overlaid with gold. It'll have rings on the side that you'll put poles in so the priests can carry it. On the inside of that ark, you're going to put these two tablets that I've inscribed with my fingers. And on the edges of the ark are going to be images of two angels watching over my word. And right between those angels, I'll meet with you, Moses, to lead and instruct my people. So this is a very special thing with something very special inside of it at which place very, very special interactions would take place between God and Moses as he leads his people. Now, as Israel moved into the land and um, rebellion happened, that ark actually is off, not in the city of Jerusalem with God's people, but just off in somebody's house. It's It's been sort of lost and treated as not very special. And so we're going to pick up this morning... In 2 Samuel 6, where David, who was just crowned king over all the land, we heard that last week, 
finally, king. He'd built a palace for himself in Jerusalem. And now he's going to go and get this ark. It's one of the first things he's going to do as king. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bela in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, that's the angels, on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals, a full band. Okay. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. and The Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord 
who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Some of the verses from Psalm 68. Um, The commentators disagree with each other on whether David wrote this psalm after first going to get the ark and then going back to Jerusalem or after bringing it back the second time. Just interesting to think about. David's words, May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads the prisoners out with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When you, God, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it. And from your bounty, God, you provided for the poor. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Your procession, God, has come into view. The procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. In front are the singers, after them the musicians, With them are the young women playing the timbrels. Summon your power, God. Show us your strength, our God, as you've done before. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Amen. I've got to start by telling you that um, Pastor Jean is on vacation this week. Pastor Jalisa is away with Brendan celebrating their wedding anniversary. And both of them are really sad that they can't be here because they think that you're going to get a chance to see David dance as David danced. (laughs) But I said to them that they were the dancing experts and maybe we'd leave that for next week. Um, I'm not saying if I don't get moved to dance, I'll dance, but it's not in the script, all right? (laughs) So so anyways, (laughs) Um, I want to start with this. A couple of weeks ago, this, this picture came back to my mind as I was thinking about the sermon. A couple of weeks ago, We were sitting down at the table, and Matthew went to go and get something that was on the stove. And uh, by accident, he touched something that was hot, and he got burnt. And I saw it happen, 
And I saw him, ow! You know, and just, yeah! Now, I, there's probably not a person here who hasn't done that at some time, right? I mean, some of us are a little slower learners, and we've maybe done it more than once. But we've all touched something hot and just, like, pulled away. And that's a really healthy response. Um, if you left your hand on something that was hot and that was going to burn you, that would be not, not so smart. That would be pretty foolish. So it's healthy to have this natural response to pull away and actually to have caution about going back to that thing that was hot. And what, what, what happens to us physically actually happens relationally and emotionally as well. If we're involved in a relationship with somebody whereby trust is broken and we get hurt or we get burned, we naturally pull away. We pull away physically from the relationship, but we also pull away emotionally. We sort of close up. In other words, there's, there's, a, there's a proper or an appropriate fear of getting burned again. So at the level of our hearts, we've kind of always got this, this dynamic going on. Am I going to trust, which means I'm going to be open? Or am I going to be afraid, which means I'm going to be closed? Am I going to be afraid of being burned? Now, what happens when you feel like you might be being burned by God? What happens when you get hurt and you feel like the source of your hurt is God? That's the dynamic that we're looking at today. That's where we meet David in this text. When we see him in the middle of this text, he is angry and he is afraid. He's angry and he's afraid. And he is slinking his way back to Jerusalem with his tail between his legs going, what just happened? I mean, this is, this is um, quite humiliating. He's got 30,000 people with him. Can you even picture that? 30,000 people. This took planning. This didn't just come together in a day. This took announcements and planning and gathering and working up towards. And he's got 30,000 people with him going to get the Ark of the Covenant. And they are having a party. And they are worshiping. And they're praising. And they're singing. And he is, by all appearances, he is intending good and right. His purpose, his, the, the intent of his heart looks pure. It looks like he's trying to do the right thing. And so you might think, well, this is a little confusing for David. But I want to say to us that there's a little bit more than meets the eye going on here. Because if we'd back up before this text and if we'd read 2 Samuel 5, we'd see that between David having his palace erected and testifying about God's goodness and faithfulness and what happens here, there's a little something else that happens. And it's just a series of um, David finding out that the Philistines are going to attack and David inquires of the Lord. He asks him about what he should do. And we see it happen a number of times. David inquires of the Lord. He asks, and God gives guidance, and David obeys. And David asks, and God guides, and David obeys, and there's success. The Philistines are beaten back. But when we start our text this morning, there's no inquiring of God going on. In fact, maybe there's a little bit of presumption. Maybe David's presuming that this needs to happen in this time. 
Maybe there's a little bit of pride going on here. We don't know. But there's more than meets the eye. And so, the first thing that we need to hear is that it doesn't really matter that his intention's good when it leads to disobedience. Because disobedience is still rebellion against God, even when the intention of the heart might be good. What was the disobedience? Remember the ark when I described it, it had rings on the side? And God said, this is such a holy thing. And so you're not to touch it. You're to have poles in it that carry it. I'm putting my presence on here. My presence is not anywhere on the earth, but here. You're not to touch it. You're to have a holy reverence or respect for it. And there's no poles going through the circles here. There's just a a putting of the ark on a cart. And so they're on their way and everything looks good and it looks like it's glorifying God and then all of a sudden the the ox stumbles and the cart bounces and Uzzah reaches out and... uh Uh-oh. He's dropped dead. Uzzah drops and the party stops. And David has the humiliating task as a leader of acknowledging God's blessing is not on this. We have, I have made a mistake. Every leader knows the buck stops with you as a leader. So this is Uzzah's mistake, but this is David's mistake as a leader. And he's got the humiliating task of sending 30,000 people home. And he's got to go home without the ark and with the knowledge that God has acted in a way that surprised him, that disappointed him, that made him angry. He's angry. And he's afraid at the same time. And the text doesn't say a whole lot about those three months in Jerusalem. But we can we can wonder and we can surmise that there's a journey of the heart that's taking place for David. Because what happens when you get burned, what happens when you get disappointed, what happens when you get angry, you close up. We know this from our own relationships with each other. Every married person and every person in a friendship knows this. When you get angry, you often close down. You start to distrust. And so David's angry. God, I don't know why you did that. We're trying to serve you. And he's got a He's got to wonder and he's got to sort of get past his own pride. But, but there's some journey that David's got to go on. Is he going to remain open to the God who's loved him and called him and whom he's followed and who's proved trustworthy and who just humiliated him? Is he going to open his heart? God has acted in a way that he didn't expect. God has ex- expressed his godness in a way that's hurt, disappointed, humiliated. And what is David going to do about it? Is he going to stay closed and angry? Or is he going to open his heart? And is he going to come back again to trust God? Will he, will he allow God 
to express his godness in any way he desires. Will he get underneath God's sovereignty? You are God. You can do what pleases you. You're holy. Or will he actually stand in judgment over God? To use the words that Pastor Gina highlighted last week, will he get bitter? Or will he get better? Friends, before we look on again at David's story, I want to say that I think that we deal with the same dynamic, this same choice in our lives very, very regularly. So God disciplines us too. Hebrews 12 says that he disciplines those he loves. His discipline is his love. And I want to just share a a brief illustration that I think um, will really help us open up this dynamic of his discipline as his love and make sense of why he might choose to kill Uzzah. Um, There's a scene in the movie The Lord of the Rings. I think it's the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, where there's an interaction that happens between Gandalf the wizard and Bilbo Baggins the hobbit. And if you know the movie, you know that the the central story is based around this one ring of power that has been um, that, that has great great power, but has been um, created for evil purpose. And nobody can can um, hold that ring and steward its power without it t- overtaking them. And so Bilbo is about to set out on a long journey and he's about to give this ring to Gandalf and all of a sudden the ring starts to express its hold on on Bilbo and he doesn't want to give the ring to Gandalf and Gandalf asks again and he, and he asks a couple of times and Bilbo starts to get a little bit snarky with him and then all of a sudden, in, in, in the movie, Gandalf grows to about twice the size and says, Bilbo Baggins! Do not take me for a mere conjurer of cheap tricks. And then he shrinks back down to be the friendly, loving wizard that he is. And Bilbo, whimpering and afraid and somewhat reverent, hands him the ring. And they continue the interaction for a little bit. Gandalf His heart is love. His heart is to care for Bilbo. His heart is friendship. But he will not be taken as one who is only a friend. And I think you can see where I'm going in this. God calls us in the New Testament. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. God longs for friendship with us, but he will not be taken as merely a friend. He is God. And when we start to slide out anywhere out of recognizing his godness, then sometimes there needs to be an expression that creates reverence, expression of his godness, that brings us back into an appropriate fear of the Lord. Because... If David doesn't live 
and lead as a king out of the fear of the Lord, he will wander off and destroy himself and his people. So it's God's love that leads him to discipline. It's his love that leads him to express his power in such a way that we would see it, that we would get a revelation of, oh God, you are so majestic and holy and other and strong and mighty, and we would have the opportunity to humble ourselves and get underneath it. So God disciplines us because he loves us. And some of that discipline is active. He actively does things or withdraws things in our lives. Some of it is what I would call passive. He allows us to experience the fruit of rebellion. God is a king. And as a king, his ways are meant to be followed and obeyed. In any time we are not aligning an area of our life with the ways of King God, we're in rebellion. So if our tongue is not yielded to the Lord, if our finances are not yielded to the Lord, if our relationships and the way that we handle them are not yielded to the Lord and His Spirit and the way that He would have us live, we're in rebellion. And rebellion, the Bible says, always produces bondage. When you're in rebellion against God, you're opening the door for Satan to come and oppress. So, if I'm living in unbelief, if my view of God and the world and my life isn't shaped by his word, then I'm living in unbelief. I'm opening the door for oppression. And sometimes God allows us to experience that as a means of discipline, that we might seek him, that we might come humble ourselves and come back after him. So God disciplines. But I want to say that this dynamic of will we trust him, will we keep our hearts open to God, goes even further than his discipline. I think it, it, it applies across the board every time he acts in a way that disappoints us. Every time he expresses his godness to answer or not answer a prayer, to change or not change a person, to heal or not heal a person, in a way that disappoints us. We all know what it's like to be disappointed. The spouse that didn't get better, that died. The spouse whose heart didn't, the friend whose heart didn't get soft, but got harder and walked away. The child who hasn't come back to the Lord yet after all these years of praying. The job that I longed for and didn't get. The disease that he hasn't taken away yet. The list goes on and on. We have hopes. We have desires. And we know the word of God says that he's the one who fulfills the desires of our heart. Who opens up his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. And so if they're unmet and unanswered, there's disappointment, isn't there? And every time I think there's disappointment, we have to deal with this dynamic. Am I going to close down my heart in anger and in fear? Or am I going to keep trusting and keep walking with God? Now listen, you can be in church and not walk with God. 
You can be sitting here and you can sing songs and you can go through religious routine and you can even read the Bible and not be walking with God. I know people who checked out of having an active walking relationship with God years ago and still sit in church every Sunday. Don't let anyone here be fooled into thinking that your heart is open, you're trusting, you're walking with the Lord, He's shepherding you, you're following Him just because you go through religious routine. A routine that may be good in and of itself. The heart being open is this posture of trust and of yielding to God and His ways even when we don't understand them. We've all got this dynamic present to us ongoingly. So, how do we deal with disappointment and discipline? Do we feel abandoned? David maybe felt abandoned. God had removed his blessing. God had clearly said, you're, by what he did, you're not operating according to what I've commanded. God abandons David in the moment. Or does he? And that's the question David's got to deal with over those three months. And I think the psalm and the portions of the psalm that I read give us a little bit of insight into the journey of his soul and the journey that we might take too. And so I want to just say two things about what I think, how I think David deals with his disappointment. If you read the whole psalm, and I welcome you to do it at home, you notice two things. That from beginning to end, David worships God as a divine warrior king. A warrior king who has, he reviews God's faithfulness, he reviews God's actions in drawing and leading through the desert and appearing and giving the law and bringing to this place and settling in it. And he says, you refresh your weary inheritance and you are the God who who provides for widows and you're the God who um, is a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. This is who you are. And so David calls to his mind, he stirs up faith He lifts up his eyes. He doesn't get stuck in the anger or the bitterness or he gets out of it by lifting up his eyes and saying, God, this is who you are. He reviews the character of God. You're a God who delivers. You're a God who leads. You're a God who's powerful. You're a God who's close to the hurting and the broken, who provides and who refreshes. And then he calls on God to do those things. I think you heard a couple of times he said, God, show your power. Summon your power now. Now listen, if you think you've been abandoned by God, you're not looking for God's power and presence in your life. If you think you've been abandoned by God and you don't trust Him, you're not asking Him to work right now. The sign of a heart that that is open to God is a heart that's praying, God, I trust you enough to ask you to demonstrate your power and your presence in my life right now. I trust you. I trust that you've not abandoned me. So David rehearses and he calls to mind and he stirs up faith. And um, I think that when we look to the New Testament, we see a beautiful picture of Paul trying to do the same thing for the Christians in Rome in Romans chapter 8. Paul actually quotes the psalm, Psalm 44, which talks about being slaughtered. 
God's people are being slaughtered like sheep, it says. And Paul says in Romans 8, hey, even though we be slaughtered like sheep, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Angels can't do it. Demons can't do it. Height can't do it. Depth can't do it. The past can't do it. The present can't do it. There's nothing. He says there's nothing in all creation that will ever cause us to be separate or abandoned. How do we know that, says Paul? He who gave himself for us, how much more will he not give us all things? So this is Paul's argument about why we're never abandoned by God. He who gave himself for us, how much more will he not give us all things? In other words, Paul's saying, have you got a revelation of who our king is? God is king. Yes. But he's a king who came into this world. He spoke galaxies into being and he humbled himself to come and be born of a woman. And he came into this world and he brought the kingdom of God with him and he allowed himself as king to be crucified. He's a king who gives his life. Paul says, when you know that king, you know that you will never be separate from him. If he gave his life for you and you are his by faith, then you will never be abandoned. And so he's calling them, lift up their eyes, have a fresh revelation of who God is as king, and then he's saying, see, this stuff may happen in your life, but that does not mean God has abandoned you. You might be disciplined. You might be experiencing pain, grief, unanswered prayers, yet, but... This is our God and King. And so you live as a not abandoned one. In other words, Paul is calling them to keep their hearts open to God. To keep loving and following and worshiping Him. So I want to end with two questions this morning. No, I want, to, I want to say one more thing before those two questions. I want, to, I want to talk to you really quickly about the fruit. The fruit of keeping your heart open, trusting God. And I think what happens in David is he humbles himself. God's expressed his sovereignty and David has essentially gotten un, back underneath him and said, you are God and you are king. And what that humbling on David's part does is it prepares him for when he gets the news that the ark is being, that the house of Obadiah is being blessed and he's ready to go get the ark. But I think it's not just the getting the ark that's so beautiful. What I think is so beautiful is that this time when all of those people and not just those people but all of Israel are gathered together, what they get to witness is an earthly king doing what earthly kings don't do. Earthly kings draw glory and power and recognition to themselves. And this earthly king doesn't need to be humiliated by God anymore. Now, he says, I'll humiliate myself. I will get more undignified than this. I don't care what you people think of me as long as you see the holiness and the majesty and the worth of our God. Let him be exalted among us through me. I'll become undignified. Yes. And I think when you look forward to the New Testament, and I just talked about Paul, you see the same thing in Paul. 
These are the words that come from Paul's lips. Hey, for me to live is Christ. I hope you see Christ in me. Paul says, I've become a fool for Christ. I don't care. He says, what you think of me. I want you to see Christ. And so here's where I want to end now. Have we got a revelation of King Jesus as such a loving and holy and worthy king that not only would we keep trusting him ongoingly, but that we would say, God, I don't care how I get humiliated. I don't care how undignified I look in my workplace or at my school or wherever you put me. I don't care as long as you are lifted up. As long as you get glory. As long as the world can see through me that there is a king named Jesus. And he's worthy. What message does our life speak about King Jesus and his worthiness? Amen. Let's pray before we respond with song.